this morning as we uh, open our Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Um, we're going to be reading the final few paragraphs of that uh, chapter. So if you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be reading from verse 15 all the way through verse 28. The author of Hebrews throughout when he's uh, quoting uh, scripture, he'll say where the Holy Spirit says, or this is where God says, and he quotes scripture showing us that, yeah, this, this God is speaking this. It, yes, God used human instruments to write it down in their own style, and their own manner to write it down, but it was God speaking. It was God, God talking to us through this writing, and God is speaking to us through the writing of even the author of Hebrews himself. And uh, so while he is writing, some, you know, 1,000, 1,500 years uh, uh, since those writings had been written. And he's still saying it's still God's word. Here it is 2,000 years later, and it is still God's word to us on the other part of the world. So if you're able, I would ask you please to stand together with us as we read from Hebrews chapter 9. God's word from the book of Hebrews chapter 9 beginning in verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. <clears throat> this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the, of the law to the, all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law uh, requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then uh, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, and now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again in the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Uh, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Do you ever 
feel like God is a million miles away. You know, he's seated in heaven, but heaven is somewhere you can't see, and it's it's so far that we couldn't begin to see, and that's where God is, and there's a tremendous barrier between us and him. We can't, you can't get to him. And you think, well, maybe if I pray, but even your prayer, your words seem to disappear into thin air and they don't go beyond the ceiling. You try to make your way to him, but he's just too far away. There's just too, too much between the two of you. And you think, well, he's bound to be angry at me, and that's the reason for all this distance. Um, after all, you, you realize that you sinned again. It was the sin that you said you weren't going to do anymore. The same sin you promised even last week that you weren't going to do anymore. And this week you went and you totally forgot that promise. And, or maybe you remembered it, but at that time you didn't care. And, and now there seems to be this barrier between you and him once again. Seems that you were almost like Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden with an angel standing at the edge there with flaming swords sweeping. So you can't get into his presence anymore. And you wonder what you can do to know the warmth of his presence once again. It doesn't seem that anything you can do will bring you there. You say, I need help. I need someone that will Someone that will go between me and God. Someone that will be a, a mediator for me and God. Someone that will help me restore this relationship with God. Well, I think the author of Hebrews is telling us that we have someone like that. Someone who truly does mediate for us between uh, us and a God that we have offended. And so this morning we're going to talk about uh, this mediator, this better mediator. He talks about the fact that Moses was a mediator of an old covenant, and, but now we have Christ, the mediator of this newer covenant. And so this morning we're going to talk about Christ as the mediator of a newer covenant and seeing how he is a better mediator, the type of mediator that we all need to bring us close to God. And so the first point in your outline you see there is the need for a mediator. A mediator is one who goes between two parties who are at odds with one another, and he helps them to work out their differences. You, we see it quite often when uh, labor unions and management are uh, at odds with one another, and the, the union says, you got to pay our guys more, and they're saying, we can't pay you guys more. We, we don't make that much, and so you know, there's, this, there's this long uh, mediation that goes on between union and man management. Sometimes marriages get into places where the husband and wife think that we, we can't get along together anymore. Um, we're, we're just going to have to completely separate. Well, they go to a mediator who helps them begin to, to work out their differences and see if we can't get them back into a proper relationship with one another. There has to be, first of all, this point of contention point of contention that is that uh, has separated us, brought us apart. And that usually happens when someone's rights has been violated. What's happened between man and God 
God's the creator, sustainer of all life. He's the one who made us in his image, and he has all the right in the world to tell us what it means to live as the image of God. He says, I am God. This is what it looks like to be me. These laws reflect my character, and so if you're going to be my image as I've created you to be, here's what you do. You do these things. You're being obedient to me. You live your life to bring honor and glory to me. And how well do you have to keep that up? Well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that we're to be perfect, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect, right? If we're His image, we need to look just, you know, we, we really need to reflect that image perfectly. Um, where when, when we don't meet those demands, there's a point of contention. We need a mediator. It's what happened in the garden, right? It's what happened in the garden. A man was given one law, don't eat from the tree, but he says, I'm going to, you know, after his wife takes it and eats it, tempted by Satan, he takes it too, and then there's like, God, I don't care what you said. I don't care that you created me. I don't care you want me to be in your image. I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to reflect my image and my glory instead of yours. And the God who has every right in the world to tell us everything that we need to do in order to be in his image is violated. So we need someone to come between us, someone who would be a mediator, and get us back into a proper relationship with him. The people in the Old Testament knew of a need for a mediator. When God gives the law, and they might be thinking it's easy for us to get to, to do the law, because later on they come back and say, yes, all this will do. But when God gives the law there at Mount Sinai, and the people come to the mountain, and they hear God's booming voice, and they, they hear the thunder, and they see the lightning, and the smoke coming up from the mountain, they're scared to death. And they go, ooh, presence with God is kind of a scary thing. I don't know that we can handle that. So Moses, you go to him. You be our mediator. You go between us and him, right? Under the old covenant, it went on that the high priest would be the one who would be the mediator. He was the only one who could go behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies where God's presence was. And then he could only go there once a year. But he did have to go back every year because the guilt wasn't completely removed. We see it in verse 9 where the, the things that went on then says this is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. His conscience still felt guilty because sin was still there. And this conscience, this guilty conscience, reminded the people that they were still separated from God and that the mediator that they had of the old covenant wasn't quite doing it, wasn't bringing them back into a relationship with God like we had in the garden, right? Couldn't remove guilt, couldn't remove the guilty conscience. So what did they do? There was a need 
for a new and a better mediator, a better covenant, one who could come and remove the separation between God and man and really bring us back together with God. Between God and those whom he called, we see in verse 15, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised uh, eternal inheritance. The called ones, those who are God's people, God's chosen, his elect, those who are effectually called, they are the ones that need reconciliation with God. And so there needed to be a new mediator who could do that and do it perfectly. Because the old mediator under the old covenant wasn't working. The guilt was not, the guilt was not removed and a restoration into the presence of God was not available. Well, the cost of a mediator in our day and age, when you hire a mediator, I'm sure you pay them a lot of money and everything, but this mediator had to pay a ransom as well. We see that again in verse 15. Um, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised uh, eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sins committed under the first covenant. A ransom is the payment for the release of a hostage facing death without the payment. Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant, comes and he sees what God's demands are. What was God's demand for breaking the law in the garden? As soon as you eat from that tree, as soon as you break my law, you will die. And then in the New Testament, we see Paul picking it up again in the book of Romans where he says, the wages of sin is death. That's the payment. That's the payment. Your, your sins bring about death. God demands perfection, absolute perfection. We've already heard it from Matthew 5 where Jesus said, be, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. But we see that the ransom, the payment, had to be perfect as well. You go back to Exodus chapter 12 where he's talking about the, the, the lambs that the people had to bring in Passover. And they had to be spotless. They had to be brought into their house for three days so that they could examine them and make sure that they were spotless. This ransom that had to be paid had to be a pure and spotless ransom. We, uh, we so often try to make ourselves pure and spotless so that God will accept us, don't we? And so we begin to change things up. We begin to say things like, well, we're not really so bad, right? I know a lot of people who are worse than me. I know a lot of pastors who really behave a lot worse than me. Several of them are Presbyterian pastors, too. So I'm not so bad. But God's not grading on the curve. We think, I've dotted all my T's, I've dotted all my I's, crossed all my T's. And this is what, you know, the young man who comes to Jesus, what must I do to, you know, come to the kingdom of God? And he says, well, obey the commandments. And he says, which ones? And so he, he rattles off several of them. He says, yes, do this and, and, and you will live. And he says, well, what else? And then he says, well, take everything that you have and go sell it all and take the money and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the rich young man 
turned and left. You see, um, it means everything to God. It means everything for God. And God's not grading on a curve saying you did well with the five, six, seven, and eight, but uh, nine and ten you didn't do so well with. And those first four, you totally lost those, okay? But because you've got a 60% here, I'm going to, God doesn't grade like that. His demand is 100%. And the 100% because of sin means that God is requiring, he requires a, a death. And that death has to be the perfect death of a perfect, of a perfect sacrifice. Perfection is demanded because what God means. That's what, that's what God demands. It's a cost that must be met. Blood had to be shed in order to be made perfect. We see it in verse 22. Uh, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. We kind of see this from very early on, don't we? You know, Adam and Eve are naked. They tried to cover themselves with the fig leaves. And that doesn't work. So what does God do? He takes the skins of animals and covers them with those. What, what had to happen when the skins of animals were taken off the animals? There was bloodshed, right? And then we see it with uh, uh, Cain and Abel who bring their sacrifices to God. And Abel's sacrifice is accepted and Cain's is not. Why? Cain brought fruit and vegetables. Abel brought animal sacrifices. Blood had to be shed in order for there to be true forgiveness. And so the law throughout the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, they had to always sacrifice the animals. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, we're, we're told about the, the uh, priest going in and having to make everything uh, clean and the people clean by the shedding of blood and the sprinkling of blood on them. Blood had to be shed in order to be made perfect. Christ, who is our mediator, not only mediates the payment, he becomes the payment himself. He becomes the payment by giving his own blood and becoming the ransom. That he, he died as a ransom, shedding his own blood. But his blood was not like the blood shed back then where it had to be shed on a regular basis and especially every day of atonement had to be shed over and over again. No, we were told here that our mediator who, who shed his blood, he comes and he, and he sheds it once for all. It doesn't have to be repeated day after day. And every time you sin, you don't have to think, Christ had to shed his blood for me again. He says, otherwise Christ would be suffering eternally and continuing to suffer since creation. But his suffering came once for all. And I want you to know his payment was absolutely sufficient. His payment to redeem us, to bring us back into a relationship with the Father, it was absolutely sufficient. You know, no matter how good you think you are, try to be, it's not good enough to have that relationship with 
God can. But no matter how bad you think you are, it's not so bad that Christ's work is not enough. And it's Christ's work doesn't make us perfect in God's sight. You can't outsin God's grace. You can't outsin the work of Christ on the cross, who God sees and accepts as payment for your sins. Evidenced by the fact that He rose Him from the dead. We're going to be talking about that in a few weeks as we, we come to the Easter season. God has accepted the payment of Christ on, on your behalf as payment for your sins by raising Him from the dead. Christ's work, Christ's perfect work, Christ the sinless Lamb of God come into the world to redeem the world, pay for their sins by shedding his own blood. Well, when a mediator uh, comes to mediate because he's needed, um, his cost in this case was pr pretty expensive. This is his own blood, giving his own life, shedding his own blood when, when he had never sinned at all, but he shed his blood for our sins. What's the result of it? What are the benefits of having such a mediator of this wonderful new covenant? What are the benefits of such a mediator? Well, we, we see some of it in verses 16 and uh, well, we see it earlier there in verse 15 again. Uh, for this reason, Christ came to uh, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Eternal inheritance. What do we inherit? Well, Christ as the Son of God, what does he inherit? Everything, right? Everything was inherited in Christ. Christ came as the one. All the promises, remember Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter 3, all the promises given to Abraham way back in the Old Testament, all of those promises about land and a people and that he would be uh, Abraham's God and, and Abraham's people would be God's people and so on. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that if you're in Christ, all of those promises are yours because Christ inherited them by virtue of being in Christ. You inherit those. Right? Land promises? You want to know about the land? Read from Revelation 21 and 22. Right? We, we just had talking about Revelation 22. What happens there at the end of the book? What happens at the end of God's Word? What does He tell us? Well, we see this current world being uh, burned up in, in fire and everything. And then we see new heaven and a new earth coming together. And who's there? Who gets it? If you're in Christ, you do. Because that's Christ's inheritance. And this isn't like the first heaven and the first earth. Remember the first, uh, first earth? It was wonderful. We call it paradise, you know, in the Garden of Eden. It's pretty good. There was no sin to cause any problems yet. Mosquitoes weren't around. Maybe they were around, they just didn't bite. I don't know. 
thorns didn't grow up and man didn't have to work the, the field, you know, sweat of his brow. And women, if you had children, it wouldn't have hurt, right? I hear it's pretty painful because of sin. All of the things that we see in the world around us, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8. He says the earth, even creation is suffering because of the fall of man, because of sin. When Christ returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth, and this is what we inherit, you can look at it there in the last couple of chapters of the Bible. It says there's no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain. The old things gone away and everything has become new. This is paradise restored. Only it goes one better. There's a, there's a line in uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy where uh, Sam is talking about how you know everything is so bad and he's, just, uh, he's wondering if there could ever come a time when all of the bad would be uh, undone. And yeah, it's coming, Sam. It's coming. It's coming. All the bad stuff that's a result of sin will be undone. And those mosquitoes, they might be pleasant next time we see them. Not body. And you'll be able to hear, you'll be able to see without the aid Backs won't hurt. Um, all these things. It's an eternal inheritance. Some of what we possess, we see in the last couple of chapters of the Bible. But what else do we get as a benefit of our mediator restoring our relationship with God? Not only this eternal inheritance where, man, it looks good from where I stand. Does from where you stand, but but look at what else we get. Verse twenty four here in Hebrews nine. <clears throat> For Christ did not enter a man made sanctuary that is uh, that was uh, only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear uh, for us in God's presence. <laughs> what else if we're in Christ? What else do we get? Well, we get access into God's presence. You know, this is the great. The great covenantal promise throughout all scripture. You find it, the repeated frame, uh, refrain throughout the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. Now we think about all the blessings that God gives us and we say bless me Lord, give me this, give me that. And we think of the wonderful things and some of the, the things we mentioned with the eternal inheritance. Those are great. But God's greatest promise to us is he says I will be you will be my people, and where I am, there you will be too. When you get married, in your vows, you know, uh, before the preacher and everything, you're not about to say, um, man, or, or woman, <laughs> I, I'm really glad that we're getting married because you can cook really good, and I need someone to keep my house clean, and uh, someone to uh, you know, provide the money to get the gas in the car and all of these things. And so I'm just really glad I'm marrying you. What are you saying? I'm marrying you for what you can do for me, right? 
Now, we don't do that. We may be thinking that in our, in our wedding, but that's not what it's really about, is it? No, we're saying, I'm going to give to you the most that I have, and the most that I have is myself. And when I give you myself, everything that's with me comes along with it. God's greatest promise to us is not a bigger house. It's not a better car. It's not a bank account that's full of money. And it's not all of these different material things. God's greatest promise that he can give to us, he says, I give you myself. I'm giving you. I'm going to give you myself. Access into my presence. That's a scary thing if you come in your own unrighteousness or your own, what you think is righteousness, which is unrighteousness. Isaiah recognized that in Isaiah 6, right? Coming before a holy God, falls on his face and says, Woe is me, for I'm undone. He's pronouncing judgment on himself. The author of Hebrews tells us that because of the work of Christ and because we're in Christ and because of the work Christ has done for us and he's cleansed us with his blood, that now we can come boldly into the presence of God. We can come with our consciences clean. The guilt has been removed because Christ removed it. We see this, which is the, uh, the other benefit here that I wanted you to see. Not only do we have e eternal inheritance, access right into God's presence. By the way, the curtain, remember, torn from top to bottom? We can go there now because of the work of Christ. And, and look with me, verses 26 through 28. Then Christ would have had to have suffered many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is, a, is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. <laughs> Freedom from sins. Is that a, do you see that as a benefit? Do any of you, you know, in thinking of your relationship with God, when you go, I did it again. Man, I despise the sin that so easily confronts me and, and I seem to not be able to get over it. Would, would it be great if that was gone? No more falling in temptation to sin because Christ had taken it away. Isn't that an incredible benefit that the mediator of the new covenant has brought to us? Now, if you were reading and, and you were noticing here, there's kind of some interesting stuff in this passage. In verse 15, it talks about a covenant. It, it goes back to the language of covenant in verse um, 18 and, and 20 and so on. But in verses 16 and 17, it talks about a will. It's the same Greek word, diatheke. Um, I don't want to go into a, a whole lot of, uh, because it can get uh, pretty technical here and some difficult stuff to, 
to really grasp and understand. But the author, one of the things the author of Hebrews is telling us with the same word, the same Greek word, diatheke, meaning covenant and will, last will and testament. He's saying that uh, the one who makes this testament, this will, it comes into effect after he dies. Right? Well, Christ has died. And all the inheritance that was his, he gives to us along with him because he's raised from the dead. Who can change a will after someone has died? He can't. The will is set. Christ, in his death, was dying a death to bring these benefits to you. Eternal inheritance, access to God's presence, freedom from sins. Christ has died to pay for your sins. He has. It's done. He's paid for your sins. And so when you begin to worry, have I done it this time so badly that I put that barrier back up there? If Christ has died for your sins and has paid for them, will he change his mind? Because you mess it up once more. The will is already set. It's already done. He's already paid for it. Will he change his mind? No, he won't. The benefits of the mediator of the new covenant that he brings to us are set in stone. And if you're in Christ, these, this inheritance is yours. Eternal inheritance where all of the promises, Revelation 21, 22, they're yours. Access to the presence of God, by the way, you find that in Revelation 21, 22, don't you? God is there. There will be with him. In a place where we're free from our sins. That barrier's gone because of the work of our mediator. This morning, I, I hope that you're trusting in him. I hope that you're trusting in the work of our mediator who, who died as a ransom and with his blood paid for your sins. If you're trying to do it yourself, I'm going to tell you that barrier is always going to be there. But if you're trusting in Christ, that barrier is gone already. And all the blessings, as uh, is, is, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, all the uh, blessings in the heavenly realms are yours. If you've not trusted in him as your mediator, as the one who died as a ransom to pay for your sins, then there's no better time than right now this morning. Tell him you're tired of trying to work your way to him because you know it's not working. The guilt is still there. Say, I trust in the Lord Jesus and his work and his shed blood, which will truly remove that guilt. Let's pray.